0: God, the meeting is about to start. Where do I sit? No one wants to sit by me. I don't care. Sit down. This chair is cold. I hate these freezing folding metal chairs. I want out of here. As I sat in the circle with my eyes down, I placed all my mental focus on my intuitive feelers, as I always did back then in groups. Who's looking at me? Who's tuned into me being here? Who's lusting after me? In the center of my energetic web, I cast invisible tendrils all around the circle. I imagined that I could feel every vibration around me, and that I could control them all. I was the spider in the middle of its lair, the black widow in the pink tank top, ready to spring on my prey and devour it. The meeting started with the customary introductions, but I tuned out the words. Wrapped in the familiarity of my web... I was getting high off the vibrations I was starting to feel from men in the room.
1: Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here. In this week's episode of Full Potential Now, it's time to have the talk. That's right. Ted sits down with author and certified sex addiction therapist, Stacey Sprout. Stacy's book, Naked in Public, A Memoir of Recovery from Sex, Addiction, and Other Temporary Insanities, is available now. Don't go anywhere. Sex addiction in America. How prevalent is it? Conservative sex addiction statistics indicate compulsive sexual behavior affects an estimated 3-6% of U.S. adults which actually equates to 7 to 14 million people a year. The percentage is very similar to the number of people with cardiovascular disease in the US. Yet I see way more commercials and advertising for medications to help me prevent a heart attack and lower my cholesterol than I do to prevent me from becoming a sex or porn addict. I see way more ads urging me to get help for my drug addiction than I do for my sex or porn addiction. Every year, Porno Hub, the largest porn site in the world, publishes statistics on visits to the website. In 2016, they racked up 23 billion visits to their site and collectively 4.6 billion hours. It averages 100 billion videos per year worldwide, 40% of which occurs in the US. If we do the stats worldwide, this breaks down to 12.5 porn videos per person on Earth. According to CNN, one to five men have solicited a prostitute in their lifetime. That is one in five. Does that mean everyone watches porn, but they're just not talking about it? Is porn left to the privacy of one's home or relationship? Is sex fantasies and voyeurism left for the strip clubs, private group, sex parties, or swingers? What puzzles me is that we have all heard of rape, sexual abuse, and sexual predators in our neighborhood. These are bad things that we do not want to have happen to us or anyone we know. Yet compulsive sexual behaviors or sex addiction does not. All the above falls on a continuum, believe it or not. Is there anything considered healthy on the continuum? Or are we just all perverts for looking at porn? I mean, don't get me wrong, I love a great orgasm. So if one is able to climax voring on something, are they considered a pervert or sex addict? Or is it somewhat healthy? So what exactly is sex addiction? (laughs) Yeah, we have the absolutely amazing Stacey Sprout on the podcast today. We are so lucky. She's a licensed psychotherapist, author and publisher with 20 years of experience as a therapist and social worker in a variety of settings ranging from community mental health and hospitals to private practice. But the big reason we have her on is she's a certified sex addiction therapist and since 2006 has dedicated her practice to helping individuals, groups, and couples in recovery from sex and relationship addictions. She conducts trainings on sexual ethics for professionals, is an experienced retreat and conference speaker, and she shares her story of recovery from childhood trauma and multiple addiction. She lives in the Seattle, Washington area with her husband, who is also in recovery. So I've been, you know, totally on my producer, editor. I'm like, we got to get a real live sex therapist on the show because we got to ask some questions and really kind of understand this part of things. So we've been down the trail of addiction, interviewing lots of people with alcohol and drug addiction. And this is one topic we haven't really covered. So we've heard from our guests, some of them mentioning, well, yeah, Ted, by the way, I had a sex addiction too. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in recovery from opioids, but now I have a sex or I had a sex addiction. And, you know, we obviously stuck to the recovery story and how they, you know, what they did to change their life around. But I really wanted to dive deep into the subject area because I think so often it's like a taboo subject.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Like, you know, I've been an addiction counselor for like over 20 years and I, in all my travels, we heard from clients that probably they had sex addictions, but I don't think like myself and like other therapists really did a great job of really probably transitioning them to, you know, a treatment for that. So I'm hoping that we could give our listeners like a great understanding of, uh, of the subject matter.
0: Well, thank you for that introduction, and I was looking at your questions because you shared some questions with me before just now, and I was amazed. I love your questions. I love your curiosity, and I have to say I'm right there with you as a counselor and someone who's worked in helping, helping professions Since 94, I did a great disservice myself to people. I had no idea. It was like it just didn't exist on my radar. And so it's, you know, through my own journey and my own struggles, it became very painfully real. And then I learned more about it in the clinical and treatment sense. So we're just so on the cutting edge, I think, of public education. There's virtually no training in mainstream schools or programs regarding it. So it's, it's, it is it's a widespread taboo like you're talking about. And thank you for helping me and thank you for being part of changing that.
1: You know, just helping the public understand this more is like the big thing here. Raising awareness And then, you know, maybe near the end, we can talk about resources, that sort of thing. And you have a great book out as well. Um, So maybe we could start first with, tell us a little bit maybe about your journey. Sure. Maybe your personal journey and then how you transition to like a profession, professional in the field.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, it was interesting because I started out as a helping professional. I was a young you know, student in social work. I really knew I wanted to do that work. I had no clue that I had multiple addictions. And the training in my program didn't help me to recognize that I had multiple addictions. I remember interviewing an alcoholic, Uh, in an informational interview, and he was helping out the students by telling us his story. And there was a real compartment between him and me. I mean, I was, you know, I I drank, and sure, sometimes kind of, wild, you know, the the typical denial and justification, I was actually a blackout drinker. Um, And so I got into some stability through therapy from that uh, eating disorder and blackout drinking, And I didn't go to 12-step. I I did therapy for many years. And if anyone reads my book, they can see it was a pretty tumultuous journey in therapy for me. Um, But eventually, it wasn't enough and my addiction was just taking different forms. And so I bottomed out in a relationship that I was in and I'd had a series of relationships that didn't get me where I was, you know, I was hoping for a long-term relationship and I couldn't really make one work and I couldn't make sex work. And so finally, I said, I've got to do something different. And that's when I heard about the concept of codependency. And I got into my first 12-step program because uh, the the man I was seeing at the time, I'm a cisgender female um, who is attracted to men, typically, he uh, he was a sex addict. And he admitted to me that he was a sex addict. And I have to say, when I first heard those two words together, I thought sex offender. I thought criminal sex offender, and I was just terrified. Uh, Of course, now I know that the majority of people who struggle with sex and love addiction do not criminally offend, Uh, but at the time, I just thought they were all the same, and so his journey and witnessing, because he'd had some recovery from his sexual acting out behaviors... What was a big part of me going to 12 step. And and then I had a sponsor, in my codependency program. And she said, I can't help you with what you're dealing with. You have to go to the S programs, like dun, 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 you know, the S programs. And so I did because I was so in so much pain and I was willing. And so that's how I got information about kind of my personal recovery journey. And then It was a few years into that that suddenly in my social work practice, clients started coming to see me for mental health evaluations and they started talking about sex addiction and uh, love addiction and suddenly I started realizing, oh, wow, this is everywhere, like I'm seeing this. And and I. so then I thought, well, it's one thing to be a sponsor in a 12-step program, but it's another thing to be a, a care provider as a clinician or a, a social worker or a, a private practice therapist or whatever. And so then I was fortunate enough to get to be hired by a place that sent me to a training. So I got certified as a sex addiction therapist. And there was lots of sex... Um, education kind of throughout my career in different ways. But the focus was on the kind of the far end of sexuality, kind of the extreme. That clinic, I worked with both sex addicts and love addicts and then sex offenders. So I did start doing some forensic or legal work with people who'd crossed uh, uh, the legal line in terms of their acting out behaviors. So that, that was, you know, that's hopefully a nutshell version of how I got into the field. And then I just loved it. It was super challenging, but it was so rewarding. And I think my own, my own recovery really informed, um, what I did, but then getting more training was, it it made a big difference in my confidence.
1: Well, I'm really glad that you mentioned that part about, you know, sex offenders versus sex addicts yeah. and the difference because like when I first I remember back to when I first heard the term that's immediately where I went to is like it's a criminal
0: yeah most people do
1: and really what you're talking about is this whole like you know maybe the majority you know the larger majority of people would probably fit under sex addict rather than sex offender or you know connected with the criminal justice system that sort of thing did you, yes. now did you find, cause when I was a mental health counselor coming up, I never got any addiction training. So like I never asked addiction questions. And then mm-hmm. when I got the training, I started asking the right questions and I pretty much walked out of like the mental health field some days thinking everybody's like addicted to something and it was like this like profound experience. I'm like, how could like a week ago, before I started asking these questions, like I didn't see anybody with an addiction problem. Now I'm asking a few questions and I've discovered like half the world has them <laughs> that I'm I seeing. Is that almost similar to like sex addiction or relationship addiction that you started asking the right questions and all of a sudden it revealed itself. I, I don't know if that was the same way for you as it was for me.
0: I can relate to that feeling, but I have it a lot around new things I learn. I think, how could I have lived my whole life not knowing that, you know? So, I mean, it, it, but I, I think I, I live in a sort of, um, narrow focus in my work. I'm a specialist, so I plaster, you know, sex addiction, love addiction recovery all over my website. So everybody that calls me, they know why they're calling in some ways that's easier then working with people who are at more of a pre-contemplative stage, they have no idea it's a long road to even get to the awareness. I have a problem because there's so much shame. So, but yeah, I do see it. I, you know, you mentioned kind of what people think about what it is and I've been obsessed with the media coverage about sex and love addiction. And so I've been following it for years and most of the stories up until the last year or so were all about criminal offenses that related to sexuality and they would conflate the term sex addict whether it fit or not now sex addiction is a brain disorder like all addictions and so that's the way we kind of try to come at it and assess it not did someone commit a sex crime or not so um, for me now in working with people, I do see a lot of kind of what I think of as, you know, sexual challenges or problems. And then it goes over into, uh, habits, like re- repeated habits that maybe people, it's not so good for them it's destructive, but they, you know, they need some kind of help to stop. And those folks do well with short-term therapy and then sex addiction. And I call it, you know, mild, moderate and severe, That's what I work with. So I really am seeing kind of the far end of the sexual struggle. Um, But there is a lot of it out there, even taking away the criminal stuff where we're seeing celebrities, we're seeing a lot of things in movies that I might say that meets criteria for sex addiction, but it's actually just shown as normal. You know, so it's pretty normalized in society. So sometimes it's hard to suss out
1: so what maybe take us through that a little bit cuz i think that would be helpful like when you look at mild moderate or severe and, and kind of those cases to understand so like the average listener would say like well um i was in a lot of different relationships i have a little codependency going on am i like a sex addict um and so i'm just kind of wondering like for the average person listening Is there like a simple way to kind of explain a little bit of the continuum and the characteristics and then how you would know if you're creeping in on that?
0: Yes. So I think in a way, the simplest way of trying to get at, is there something going on sexually? is just to ask a super broad question, which is what we do with all addictions is there anything about what's going on in your sexual life or your relationship life that feels out of control to you? So it's a very subjective question. And then I might say on a one to 10 scale, how out of control does it feel? So that just starts to bring in the conversation. And then for me, what I do is I say, um, okay, well, let's make a list of the things that are really bothering you uh, that are going on sexually or in your relationship and just know that sh- you might feel shame when we're talking about these things. Uh, and then just rate them on, uh, I use this a minus one to minus 10. So minus 10 is the thing that's just going to blow your life up, life up. It makes you feel horrible. It's the worst. It's going to land you in jails, institution or death. And, you know, minus two or three is I do it. I know it's not great for me, but, you know, it doesn't really cause that much problems. So, I mean, we know with addiction that there is distortion of how somebody perceives typically what they're doing. But I still, if we're talking to the average listener, like if I was talking to myself back in the day, you know, if somebody said that to me, I would have thought, well, yeah, I'm doing some things. Okay. Yeah a little risky, you know, and I always minimized. So you have to kind of factor in for minimization. But so then the next question is, well, tell me about what's going on. Uh, So that is a way of approaching a conversation with someone to try to get at from the subjective place are the things that are bothering you. You know, if it's an official addiction or not, or it's just a bad habit, or it's just some choices that you regret, you know. That can be kind of, if, if you're worried about addiction, like there are online resources and I can give you some online tests that people can go and take for themselves and take a look. But to me, talking with a trusted person about some things that just aren't, not feeling right, um, that's a really great way to start.
1: So I don't know if you can, but it would be really like helpful. I mean, to me and I think for the listeners, could you give like some examples of like scenarios where people like might rate it like this is really problematic for me, but like what are they actually doing? are they sleeping like with zillions of people? are they like soliciting prostitutes? are they just having like random sex um like what typically are the behaviors that you i mean it's hard to say' like typical, but what would be some examples
0: well there there are actually um there are some some typical behaviors that we see a lot when people come in for kind of sex addiction therapy. Uh, there's been an exhaust, exhaustive study and they kind of narrowed down the behaviors into 10 types. Um, so, uh, you know, it's one thing it's important for me to say, and I will give some, some specific examples, but is that it's not so much about what you do it's about how you do it. So someone who's having a lot of sex, who maybe grew up in an environment where everyone said that sex should wait until you're legally married, they might be afraid they're a sex addict. Um, Where really, there's not necessarily a sex addiction going on, there's a kind of a cultural or a values-based struggle. Um, So... Um, but, you know, so it's always important to look at the context of what's going on, both outside of someone and within them. You know, someone can look at pornography and say, I look at porn, I must be a a porn addict. Well, that's not enough of a, a behavior to meet criteria for addiction. So we go back to what we know about addiction. Um, you know, it's somebody who can't stay stopped, they can't control their behavior. They have cravings or obsessions. They don't recognize they're hurting themselves or others. Um, they, you know, they try to stop and they relapse. Um, but the kinds of behaviors that we typically see people struggle with in, at least in my practice would be, I'm obsessing so often that I can't concentrate at work. Or at home or every time I have sex with my partner, I'm fantasizing and I'm off with someone else. I'm not really there. And I use porn and I have anonymous sex and it's really risky. And I'm doing swinging or group sex that I don't want to do that. I don't feel safe doing, but I'm doing it anyway. Or I'm doing tons of cruising. Everywhere I go, I'm always looking. That was a big one for me. I was constantly gazing and looking and looking for affirmations and sexualizing everyone I saw. Um, You know, in the area that's more common for women to talk about the relationship or love addiction uh, I'm in serial relationships and I can't, I, I can't be alone. I'm totally dependent on that relationship. I have to be with someone or I'm in multiple relationships and it's making my life crazy, but I can't stop. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm checking off conquests. Men and women can struggle with that. Um, you know, I'm exchanging money for sex and I don't want to, I'm involved in humiliation and domination and it's really causing me a lot of pain or, you know, so those are, those are kind of some themes that we hear, but again, they have to be in, into the area of, I can't stop. It's causing unmanageability, um, like just a legal criteria. Like if someone pays for sex or sells sex, that doesn't make someone a sex addict. Uh, you know, even maybe a criminal behavior if it's illegal, but it, it, you know, so I I really want to distinguish the types of behavior from the how, and they have to kind of all go together.
1: What, What a, what a great explanation. So it is really, as I'm listening to you, it really is like the addiction thing. It's the, it begins to take over your life. So typically we think of like the person that becomes an alcoholic, they become more and more obsessed on it, It begins to dominate their life. They have painful consequences from it Mm -hmm. and they do it despite knowing that. And really Mm -hmm. what you've done is outlined just beautifully, I thought, is like in a really understandable way, like it's actually the same thing. Yes. Like you're doing these things and you can't stop.
0: Yes. And it is neurological. Like that's why when someone's like, if you make a choice, you regret it, you learn from it, you move on, you get into a habit. It's hard to make a different choice. You've got these grooves in your brain. It's easier to continue the habit than to stop it. You might need help to change that behavior. But what we know about addiction is the grooves are so deep and the, you know, the, the super highways are so entwined that you will go into withdrawal when you stop. And you will need more and more to get the same effect. You're always building like roads deeper down the path. So that's just what we hear in all the other addictions, too.
1: So how does sex addiction manifest itself? A person might be obsessed with pornography or strip clubs, sexting, compulsively engaging in sex acts with multiple partners, excessive masturbation, or exhibitionism, or voyeurism. In some cases, this problem can progress to rape or pedophilia. The pattern of sexual impulses and behavior causes marked distress or significant impairment in personal, family, social, educational, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. Oftentimes, guilt and shame experienced by sex addicts can fuel a vicious cycle of -of out-of-control behavior and co-occurring substance use and behavioral disorders. As a matter of fact, more than 83% of self-identifying sex addicts are dependent on alcohol or drugs, are workaholics or compulsive gamblers. So if this is sex addiction, how does one make sense out of what is healthy or unhealthy when it comes to sex or porn use? Or is there such a thing? What exactly does it mean if I use porn? I mean, Quora reports 70% of U.S. men and 30% of women view pornography. Is there such a thing as a normal amount of porn use or a normal amount of Tinder hookups? Should I feel bad about myself if I use porn or have ever used porn? I mean, like, what the heck is normal? And when should I get concerned?
0: Uh, The one, what I want to say, outlier of what looks different in my field is the pornography addictions. Because... What we're seeing with the supernormal stimulus of pornography, a lot of the sex addiction and love addiction behavior that that I used to see uh, when I was first starting this in 2006 really was um, people who had profound childhood trauma, neglect, physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, and there's a certain acting it out or escaping Maybe they're acting out whole family lineages. This is what mom did. This is what dad did. So it was very complicated, and the healing was a pretty arduous path. And but now with the pornography being this so accessible and high stream super stimuli for the brain, we're actually seeing people who, uh, not unlike some of the the very like hard drugs. um, I mean, all things can be instantly addictive, but the The profound nature of the pornography impact, especially on younger people who are accessing it early, you know, nine to 11 is kind of the first age of many people seeing porn now. We're just seeing an addiction that looks different. Um, They didn't necessarily have the childhood trauma. They didn't necessarily have the neglect, but the pornography itself they're rewiring their brains through the use of it. And so that, that is interesting to me. I think there's a lot, I have a lot to learn about that, but, um, it's somewhat of an outlier. And I mean, the good news about people who are just addicted to porn without the trauma background is that they get better quicker. So they, they have to stop the porn, but if they do that, then their brain starts to kind of rewire and they can build life skills wherever they got stuck. At using the porn, and so that, it's a pretty great prognosis uh, for that population. But but there's a very intense withdrawal from the pornography addiction that um, we're seeing a lot, especially of younger people, especially younger men, but younger women too.
1: So what do you say, like, to our listeners who say, like, well, what is average porno use where I'm not, where I'm not going to be like worried about being addicted to it? Like, is there? a normalized amount or is there is absolutely none so i think like i've heard these in conversations i've hung out with people they're like because i was telling them hey i'm going to be doing an interview they're like people started asking me it's interesting people started asking me questions i'm like well do you have any questions you'd want me to ask her and they're like well, yeah now? like i look at porn i want to know like how much is too much
0: well, that's a great question. And so I'm mean, going I to
1: answer <laughs> it. I, I've given you dropping all these bombs.
0: <laughs> I love the, I love it. It's so great. The curiosity to me, if we can all get talking about this, that's why. So I wrote my book about my own sexual recovery journey and I got addicted to pornography and I went back and forth. Can I use it? Can't I for three years? So I have my own personal journey, but then I have an opinion as a clinician of what I see. And then I also have some, I do some social activism, you know, so, so I run the gamut and my thoughts about it, but to the, to the person who's saying, well, what's, what's normal for porn use? Um, well, I think what I want to distinguish is normal porn use and what works authentically for any one person. Uh, so what's normal is everyone uses porn, especially men. Um, but like there's some Marie Claire study that said one in 10 of their women or, you know, readers who took this poll used it every day and that's mostly women. Like, so men use it more than that. Like it's very normal in our society to use pornography. So that isn't the question anymore. To me, the question is, um, how's it working for you? Um, do you feel like it is in any way uh, like supporting your healthy sexuality? Do you feel like it's neutral to you or do you feel like it takes away? And I mean, I work with people, again, who've been on the extreme end. Most people who struggle with pornography and have some of the symptoms that we're seeing like sexual dysfunctions as a result of their porn use the most frequently being uh, delayed ejaculation. So when they're sexual with a partner, they're, they're delaying their ejaculation. Some people struggle with uh, premature ejaculation or, you know, so some of the sexual dysfunctions that we see that appear directly tied to pornography, That's those are the questions, um, you know, that I'd ask a porn user. Is it interfering in your ability to connect with another person sexually? Uh And that's when it gets into whether it's normal or not, it may or may not be healthy for someone. Um, You know, in the relationships that I'm seeing for people who come for for more advanced, pretty clear addiction, we see a lot of intimacy troubles, you know, sense of betrayals with partners when there's a secret going on. And I I should have mentioned that before because that's very prominent with sex addiction is the secrecy. You talked about the taboo and the shame, you know, so... Is there secrecy going on? You know, ask all the same questions about addiction that we already went through and that we already know, like, you know, you can't stop and you want to stop, but you can't and you're hiding it and you're telling secrets and, you know, but also, you know, what is someone subjectively experiencing? And I'll add one thing. This is interesting to me because I had an interview. So I do a show called Sex Addiction in the News and I'm, I'm not writing new episodes, but I did one by Gary Wilson and Gary created a site called your brain on porn. So he's the expert on pornography. If anybody wants to know more about it, go to your brain on porn, but there are online forums and YouTube videos about men, especially but some women who've tried to stop using porn and they talk about what that's like. And so I think another interesting thing, if someone is wondering if they have an addiction to porn, um, is just stop for a while. Just try to stop for three weeks and see how you feel. And and maybe go on one of those online forums and read some of the other things people go through when they stop. There can be some pretty intense withdrawals. And so that's, you know, whether it's right or wrong, someone can decide. But if you have a dependence on porn to function sexually or, or even just to feel okay, to me, I'd be curious about that.
1: So yeah. if I'm for instance, masturbating three times a day, and I'm using porn to masturbate, like movies, magazines, whatever. But yeah. then when I have sex or love make with my wife, yeah. if, if, if I'm like not able to ejaculate because of, because of that, because I've bopped off like three times during the day already, and yeah. then when I'm making love to her, I'm thinking of someone else. Even when I do that, it's not to say like I would be a sex addict, but just to spell it on simple terms, there could be something there.
0: Yeah, exactly. That doesn't mean that someone's a sex addict. And, and you know, as we go, is it working for you? Is it working for your relationship? How's it going? To me, that's if I'm talking to people like how you know, myself, how I would want someone to talk with me, it's like, is it going okay? Or isn't it? Are you feeling connected? Are you feeling close? Do you, do you like who you are sexually? Do you like how your sex is co- going along with your wife or your partner? Like, is yeah. it okay for you? Because it's normal. I mean, I don't, maybe three times a day is more than I typically hear when I'm talking with people, just, you know, not sex addicts, regular people. But there's lots of men. I mean, there's so much accessibility. And it feels great, super pleasurable. And so I get it.
1: Can there be a chemical response in the brain? Is sex addiction like cocaine, alcohol, or opiates in terms of addiction? Can one experience so much sexual pleasure or orgasms that it affects their brain, reward pathway, and dopamine release? Would this increase the need for more intense erotic moments, experiences, or sexually arousing scenes? I mean, is it like cocaine with its massive release of dopamine in the reward pathway of the brain? Instead of needing more cocaine, you start needing more and more intense porn to get the same effect. In the study published in PLOS One, researchers from Yale University and British institutions, including the University of Cambridge and the British Association for Counseling and Psychotherapy, use real-time brain scans of 38 adults to distinguish the brain changes that occur in people with sex addiction. Half of these adults had symptoms that indicated the presence of sex addiction, while the other half acted as a generally healthy comparison group unaffected by the condition. The researchers conducted the brain scans while the members of both groups watched a combination of sex-related explicit videos and videos with no overt sexual content. In addition, they asked the participants to describe how much they liked the sexually explicit material as well as how much they desired they felt after viewing the material. After completing the brain scans, the researchers concluded that, compared to their counterparts unaffected by sex addiction, the participants dealing with the condition experienced an unusual elevation of activity in three separate parts of the pleasure center. These brain structures are responsible for things such as the ability to recognize a rewarding sensation and the ability to control emotional responses to pleasure. The researchers also concluded that the observed brain function changes in the study participants with sex addiction made these participants desire sex more, but did not make them like sex more than their unaffected counterparts. The study's authors believe that this unusual juxtaposition between sexual desire and sexual liking largely helps explain the presence of sex addiction. So somebody masturbates to porn and obviously mm-hmm. chemicals are released in your body when you orgasm. So is it mm-hmm. actually almost like the alcoholic or drug addict, like changing their feeling state only yes. like the opiate addict, maybe does prescription painkillers or heroin. The one who struggles with alcohol drinks a lot of alcohol and they get a different mood state. And then if we deal with sex addiction, yeah. um, um, it's really almost using like sort of like the orgasm is like the beer or a drink. So So I know I'm just throwing something. Yes no,
0: no, I love it. Yes, I wanna say a qualified yes because that to me, um, the qualified yes is this. If we think about the flood of pleasure chemicals on orgasm, it's like, yeah, especially dopamine we talk about. And then there's only so many receptors in the brain for dopamine. And so if you have this huge hit coming in all the time, it actually is too much. Like it's a super normal stimuli. And the brain is was not meant to have that much high pleasure stimuli all the time. So it starts to shut down the receptors. Oh, so now there's only two and suddenly you're doing the same amount, but you're not getting the same felt experience. So then you need to add more stimulation so that you start, you know, and then then the dopamine or, you know, everything gets in there and then suddenly you just have that much. Then you need to add more. So that's how the tolerance kind of builds up. And then you see the escalation of more extreme stuff. So we see that a lot with porn. Someone starts with more kind of porn that's aligned with whatever their sexual orientation is, and then they start using more and more extreme stuff, taboo, fear, shame. Those are all hits that kind of open up the pleasure and the sensation and the intensity.
1: Yeah, so it's almost like I'm thinking of the classic, you know, the dynamics of the physiology of cocaine. I yes. mean, like cocaine's a huge dopamine drainer. And so people yes. end up having to do more and more cocaine to get the same effect. And really what you're outlining, which I'll be honest with you, I have not heard this description in the news ever <laughs> of what Aww. you just described. I mean, this is like stuff rides on the underground so much, but yeah. really it's, it like makes total sense to me. So awesome. like- like you're having random sex or you're orgasming like five times a day, three times a day, whatever it is, but then you're actually rewiring your brain chemistry. Yes. And it's actually going to cause you to escalate. So it's almost like the cocaine addict that needs more cocaine to get off or the alcoholic needs mm-hmm. to drink more and more to get the same effect because you have increased tolerance, but maybe this is more like dopamine effects, like you have less yes. of those receptors. So you have to go like super erotic or crazy to kind of get that
0: intensity hit intensity. Yeah. hit,
1: And mm-hmm. so then you'd That's almost a- end up, is it almost like chasing that first hit? I mean, yeah, I, I've like never thought about it this way,
0: or that first, the first super, super like with porn, like the super high porn of the first time or super high. The first time you saw that porn and had that orgasm, like, Oh my God, that was so incredible. And you know, but here's my qualified. Yes to that everyone has their own erotic template. So not everyone, their big thing is the orgasm. And I think that's really interesting because, and I see that with women who, and, and somewhat myself too, before I got hooked on the porn, for me, the big erotic moment was, could I get someone to look at me? It was my own self-objectification, looking at myself sexually, and then could I get attention? And that over and over would, would kind of become the thing that I would try to stimulate. So I wasn't having orgasms, but I was having kind of this constant flood of, again, you know, there's positive neurochemicals from attention, and then it was distorted for me. And so various people, when we do some of the work in sex addiction, we talk about, well, what's your erotic moment? And another way of saying it, which you know, is what's your drug of choice? Like, is it the orgasm or is it the, you know, when you, like for some people, I see like, the actual going on the review boards and starting to call, you know, starting to make contact with prostitutes and starting to kind of get that ball rolling. And, and so sometimes for people, they'll go, that whole thing is my charge. It's not necessarily the orgasm. In fact, many people who have high sexual stimulation as part of their cycle put off the orgasm as long as they can because they want to stay in that high state before orgasm.
1: How you're explaining it makes so much sense that like it's actually Ted not about the orgasm for a lot of people it's about the setup it's almost like the foreplay yeah and how long can I stay in that because my brain's getting that super charge. like if I'm mm-hmm. obsessing like just randomly like if I'm obsessing like I'm a sex addict and I'm se- obsessing about like hooking up with people and the setup mm-hmm. of hooking up with people it mm-hmm. becomes like supercharged mm-hmm. that part of it and then if you hook up with somebody and then it ends it's over yeah and then you have to start it up again, which is the classic cycle of addiction.
0: Yeah, you got it.
1: You start so then you start obsessing. Yep. And you start and, building and, Yeah.
0: Yep. And I wanna say that is one thing we see so much with women is that fantasy. You know, and it it may be the the fantasy of happily ever after, it may be it may be for kind of what we see in more C- classic sex addiction more similar to men it may be the sexual fantasy of the sexual hit but it also may be the romance and how you know someone's going to be rescued or and those those fantasies are they come in at like age 4 age 5 or you know sometimes for boys like the hero fantasy they're so powerful that that's some of the last thing to go but it's okay you know we don't start with fantasy necessarily we typically start with just whatever behavior is causing you the most pain, suffering, unmanageability, you know, demoralization, high, high risk. We just start there, and you know, try to work on manageability, and eventually, you know, the thoughts come later, typically.
1: So, if it is similar to other addictions in terms of the chemical hijack in the brain, what can one do about it? Do the same recovery principles apply? An old AA saying comes to mind. Be comfortable in your own skin. Or better yet, learn to embody your emotional state more and more and become more vulnerable and open to your feelings. And this just might shift things. Um, so I have I'm gonna go rogue here and just ask a random question. Oh so my, God. my conversation because
0: <laughs> okay. You can answer and unanswered. Right.
1: But like so I have acquaintances that we you know, I've in conversations with them and because like I'm a therapist, blah blah blah. Yeah. I've found out like a few of my friends go to like these sex parties. Yeah. And and I'm like thinking like I, I would never even think of that, but I'm like w wh- I am like I want to ask you like what is the story on that? Is that like normal sexual development is it like is most of the people at these parties just like experiencing their sexuality in full force or is a lot of it wrapped up in sex addiction or i know what you're gonna probably say ted it's all the above
0: (laughs) (laughs) well i want to say it, it depends i mean that's it it sounds like i'm hedging my bets but i really think it's accurate that the majority of the people that i get to see that i have the honor of getting to work with as a therapist there's something about what they're doing, whether it's solo, married, you know, with multiple partners, group sex. There's something about the constellation or the what they're doing that's causing them great distress. So there, there's a lot of titillating sexual behaviors in the world. They're fascinating. I mean, more growing by the minute, I swear. Um And they can be scandalous or shocking, and we can have feelings about them. So an example is there was recently going to be the opening in Toronto of a a club, a sex club, and it was a sex doll club. So you could go and pay hundreds of dollars for an hour with a a premium sex doll. And Are these the robotic
1: dolls that interact, or is it just like a rubber doll?
0: You know, I don't know if they interacted or not. I didn't get that much detail. I, and then I heard they weren't going to open it. So, but I'm sure it'll happen somewhere. So we can, I mean, it's like we can talk about that and giggle and be like, really? Is that okay? Is that terrible? Is that dismaying? You know, but if someone goes in there and does that, are they a sex addict? I don't know. Like, I would have to assess. And some of the assess is from their own heart. Like, is that okay? How do they feel when they're in there? Was it novelty? Was it curiosity? Did they come out feeling shame? Like, and then was the shame pervasive or was it cultural? You know, was it, was it internalized? Like there's so many questions that we have to ask. And because our society is so oppressive, Sexually, we have to be so careful about people's vulnerability in talking about what's going on. On the other hand, we're in a lot of denial as a society about non-intimate sexual behaviors and some of the cost that that has on individuals um, and even on communities. And so I just I I feel like the, the discussion is so complex, but to me, the only way we're gonna get there is kind of connect with our hearts come from a place of care and concern. Um, and you know, like even, yeah, just having those conversations. I, I wrote a book and I titled it naked in public, which is an evocative title.
1: I actually because, love that title. I do absolutely you? love it. I was, I was <laughs> like, I saw that. I was like, oh, that's a killer title. I love it.
0: Uh, it's like, I love it too, because it reminds me of the dreams that we have when we're naked in public. Yeah. And, and, you know, but at the same time, how do we find a way to talk about sex addiction? Like, oh, my God, I did this stuff. You know, I went to a sex club. Uh, I went to a BDSM club. For some people, they love doing that. For me, incomprehensible shame, pain, and demoralization. So I had to put that in my inner circle. Like, I do not do that if I'm going to call myself sober today. So it so, really. So you're because- saying
1: like when you went to the club, you yeah. came out and you felt it was the feeling that you had about being in the club.
0: Yes, it was. It was. It was. And so that would be, I mean, even if you were talking with an acquaintance and you say, well, how's that working for you? You know, I don't mean to go all Dr. Phil, but he's got a great question there. It's like, hey, what's that like for you? Is it okay? Okay you know, and is it risky? I think, you know, again, because my paradigm are people who've had trouble, what I ask, especially women, because I specialize in working with women is, um, are you going looking for one thing, but you're actually getting something else and, you know, are you being honest with yourself? So I think many people go to things that are, you know, have stripped down boundaries, so to speak, as a part of the culture when they're looking for intimacy. And so I try to educate intimacy is typically not something that is super quick and easy. Um, so sex might be in certain settings, but if you're going and looking for that heart connection or even something sustainable, there may be other ways, or you know, let's talk about boundaries. The other thing I look at when people are going into group sex experiences, how are, are they good with boundaries? Can they say yes or no? I think that's really important oh, and healthy. Question. Yeah, yeah. Healthy group experiences are super up on healthy boundaries and safe words, and you know, so the the culture of of community sex has more and less healthy elements in it, and so people can you know hopefully discern.
1: Well, of course I'm now. I have another question. That's not scripted. Okay. <laughs> My other question is because I've heard this too. People who have been married for a while, like eight, ten, fifteen years, and then they go to the strip club together.
0: Uh huh.
1: And what's your take on that? I know it's like there's so probably so many variables, so it's kind of like what I think you're gonna say. Is probably like it's really up to them on what they experience when they're there. And does that actually enhance a relationship or bring them closer together? Or do do they maybe go space off in their own sexual worlds? But if they come back together later and they have great sex um, and they feel closer, um, what would be your take on that scenario?
0: (laughs) Well, I think, again, as a clinician, I would say, how is it working for your coupleship? as, as a person in the world, I definitely know that there's an element in, uh, sex for money that is incredibly closely tied to exploitation. Uh, the, the people who work in sex clubs are typically been abused, both people who, you know, dance or strip as well as people who kind of run the club. There's a high, high percentage of sexual abuse that's being reenacted in those settings. So I think if I think of the recovery principle of honesty it is to be discerning about what you're doing in the culture of community. So that that piece is important to me for people in recovery so that they don't get into a situation that is hyper-stimulating sexually, incredibly low intimacy, low heart connection, and actually exploitive because now they're joining in trading money for sex. That Those are areas of concern for me
1: So sex addiction does in fact exist, and up to 6% of the U.S. population suffers from it, what can a person do? Where could they go, and how could they get help? We know that in any given week in the U.S., there are more than 1,000 sex addict anonymous meetings going on, helping people cope with sexual compulsions. But what if I'm not comfortable showing up at one of these meetings? Are there other options? And do men and women differ? and how they approach sex addiction. If a person wanted to get help for a sexual addiction, where would be a good place to start?
0: Well, I would say that I have some resources on my website. So stacysprout.com, S-T-A-C-I-S-P-R-O-U-T. And there's there's a tab, Am I a Sex Addict? So there are a list, there's a list of 12-step sexual recovery programs listed on that. So for some people, they want, they go to a meeting and they listen to other people talk and they see if they fit, they see if they hear anyone telling their story. And just like all the recoveries, they say, go to six meetings or, you know, give it a a fair shot. Um, But that is threatening and not comfortable for many people. Um, So there are some quick online screening tests that people can take. I've got some Particularly for women on my website, um, under the best resources for women, there's a bunch of books and there's some screening tools and there, you can click and check those out both for classic relationship addiction, which actually connects to the Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous 40 Questions questionnaire on their website okay. or... Um, There's a a sexual addiction screening test for women. And then there's also, uh, am I a porn addict for women? So looking at porn addiction in women, especially younger women under 30, that's really where we're seeing the rise. But all levels have a rise in pornography use and problematic porn use. But another resource for many people is to go on something called uh, www.recoveryzone.com. And there you can take, I think there are both free and low cost self-help screening tests. So that's the way of getting started. And there's also a fantastic porn addiction screen on something called www.pornhelp.org and lots of peer support on yourbrainonporn.com. Uh, if you want to find a therapist, you can look at uh, sexhelp.com, www.sexhelp.com. Uh, that can, I think there's a therapist locator on there. So those are some ways people can get started. And, you know, for again, mostly women, but I've had some men also who read my memoir, Naked in Public, uh, uh I don't even remember the title of my book, but it's about recovery from sex and love addiction and other addictions, alcohol and food. And um, sometimes reading stories of other people's journey is a safe way into the concept and seeing if you resonate or not. There's some good memoirs out there. Um, for men, uh, a, a memoir a lot of people like is a Straight Pepper Diet. So you'll recognize um, that reference
1: Okay, great resources, listeners, and definitely so they can go online and take those tests in the privacy of their own home, and and get some kind of results, kind of kickback, as maybe yep. the first move. find a safe person. Yeah, so talk
0: it, it over. Yeah.
1: Okay, and then maybe even if you're if you you are concerned, you can talk to a specialist. You know, find a resource near you, and then also um, maybe even go to a meeting and check it out.
0: Yep. Take a friend, you know, or call ahead to the meeting and say, hey, can you meet me there? I'm nervous. It's my first S meeting. I'm not sure what to expect. Usually the contact people are super nice and helpful, we hope. so.
1: Excellent. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well, um, we have time for the speed round. So I ask you five questions. And, you know, they're random awesome. questions. You just do your best with them. Short answers. Are you game? <laughs>
0: Time game. This is my favorite part of your show.
1: What has been one of your biggest insights in the field of, of sex addiction and therapy?
0: Well, it sounds really basic, but that that sex addiction often looks very different for women than it does for men. A lot of the training was developed by men for men, and that's, you know, men lead the way on so many things, and it was an insight for me to realize, wow, we really need a whole separate training for specialized in working with women. I'm actually conducting a training coming up pretty soon here, so I'm excited about that part of my work. It's really fun.
1: Nice, nice. If you could have learned something earlier about being a sex addiction therapist, what would that be?
0: I would have, I would have connected from my heart more. I wouldn't have gotten so focused on the tests and the, you know, diagnostics. I would have just connected from my heart, probably shared a little bit more of my own story early. I was too ashamed Mm -hmm. to talk about my experience. I would have started right away and said, Hey, I, I'm a sex addict. I'm a love addict. I'm in recovery. A lot of that is behind me. There's hope it's awesome. I love my life. And, you know, it's not a death sentence.
1: Favorite food.
0: Okay. Avocado, which I, I judge is very boring. But look, I realize I'm having an avocado smoothie today. I didn't even <laughs> make that
1: connection. I love avocado. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like running out of power here. So something go quick. What's your favorite hobby?
0: Speed, speed round. round. What's what?
1: What's your favorite hobby?
0: Hobby? oh, that wasn't on the list. Oh, my God. I love playing flag football.
1: <laughs> nice. I would have never guessed that. And what is one of the weirdest oh, things? Oh, you
0: know, it's my secret, secret confession. I've blown out both my knees playing, and I'm going back again.
1: Really? <laughs> They're better now. I would have never guessed yeah. that. Unbelievable. <laughs> um, what is the weirdest <laughs> thing you've ever done? Just like in life.
0: Okay. Well, so I can't say the weirdest thing I've ever done, but the second weirdest thing is when I was in high school, my friends and I created a dummy. Um, we actually took our clothes and stuffed it with newspapers, and we sewed shoes on it, and we put a head on it and a wig, and we drew a face on it, and we threw it out in a road in the dark, and we hid in the woods and waited for a car to come by. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's a great story. That's a phenomenal story. <laughs> Confessions. like
0: this pack of, like, teenage girls and this man comes by with his truck and he goes you know in the road because it was a dark road and then he gets out of his truck and he goes and looks and he's like he puts his hand on his hip and then he gets back in his truck and drives off and then he come and we come out and we're like oh and then he comes roaring back and we run back in the woods (laughs) and he picks up the dummy and he threw her in his truck and he drove off oh and he goes He goes, not too funny,
1: guys. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, I want to thank you for being on the show today. You've been absolutely amazing. You're an amazing person and, and guest. So thank you very much.
0: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
1: Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here again. Thank you so much to Stacey Sprout for sharing her time and knowledge with us. Once again, we encourage you to check out her book, Naked in Public, A Memoir of Recovery from Sex Addiction and Other Temporary Insanities. If you liked today's episode, you can subscribe, leave a review, and listen to past episodes on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. This episode featured music by Pat Reinhold and me, John Procruzzi. Thanks for listening.